and to remind us what we confessed was true at Christmas and we sang with gusto for four Sundays in Advent that God's people, Psalm 20, never put their hope and trust in horses or chariots or princes. But we put our hope, we put our trust, verse 7, in the name of the Lord. The name who Isaiah prophesied is this. For to you, a child has been born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord of hosts, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I'm not a politician. I'm not a partisan. I'm a pastor. And I am doing what pastors have been doing that are faithful to the scriptures, directing your attention and mine to Christ again. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote that the hands of the king are healing hands. And this rightful king brings peace. So as I lead us in praying, I want to invite you in light of the chaos and mayhem and sorrows of the past week, of the past year, and I want to remind us from this scripture that wherever Jesus is truly present, he brings his peace. Wherever Jesus is present, he does not bring a division to his people. But in Christ, he brings an abiding unity through the power of the gospel. Wherever Jesus is, he brings hope in the midst of chaos. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our nation. We all have been affected by what we have watched and heard and experienced in recent days. But as Christians, Lord, we 
also hear the admonition of David in Psalm 20. To put our hope in the Lord of hosts, whose name you have revealed. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, whose government is increasing and to which there will be no end. And so, Lord, we pray for, for first our hearts, that you would help us in the midst of all distractions and chaos to put our trust to find our hope in him. Even, even where we disagree on matters of political order and right, Lord, good things. May our trust and our hope be in the ultimate thing, which is not a thing at all. It is Jesus the Christ, our King and Savior. And we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on this nation and that through your people, the gospel of Jesus Christ would be declared with gentleness and lowliness, humility and compassion clarity and unction and that there would be peace. The peace that Christ brings. First and foremost with God through his shed blood on the cross and then with others. Send your spirit, Lord, to our hearts, to this country, in this moment. That Christ, his name, would be trusted in again. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for praying with me and letting me serve you as a pastor. As with you, we direct our thoughts to Christ on this Sunday. Two announcements. First, I'm sure you noticed on your way in a beautiful poster which is announcing a new project this month for our children and children's ministry. I believe it's entitled, Your Place in God's Heart. Close? Maybe? Oh, that's what it's called. A piece of his plan There are handouts at the table for parents and grandparents to take back, which detail the instructions, and Aaron's also emailing out those instructions. It includes a promise verse for the week from Isaiah. It includes also a gospel application as our children wrestle with and and put their hope in Jesus, and it includes some discussion questions for you as a family and for really us as a church to enjoy. So take advantage of that. and then we also have a new video available that I announced wrongly uh, last week. Uh, it wasn't available last week, but it is now. Chris, thank you for taking the time to prepare that. We look forward to watching it. I will be watching it and learning uh, from your wonderful, humorous lesson from the Old Testament, correct? We're in the Old Testament? Beautiful. Good. 
Finally, we're going to be offering a new members class uh, this February, uh, and a number of you have expressed interest to us about that, and so you'll be hearing more uh, details from us shortly with dates and times and and how we'll do that. But if you'd like to find out about what this church believes, how it shapes what we do, our values, as well as our our history, take the new members class. It's a shorter class than many of us took back in the day when we first did this. What was it, three years when we first did it? Now it's four weeks, and uh, it's an informative time. Whether you join the church ultimately or not, we trust it will encourage your heart as you follow Christ. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews which is found in your New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to download the application Bible Gateway. It's free. And you'll see that in that application, there is a search engine where you can type in Hebrews 4. And then just a moment, I'm going to be reading from verses 15 and to 17. We're in a series we've entitled The Heart of Christ. I want to give... Uh, props to the, the book that I read in December that really began to frame some of my thinking for this series. Um, the, the book is entitled Gentle and Lowly, and I believe we have a picture um, of the book, maybe. Uh, if not, it's certainly it's hanging there on the wall. It's written by Dwayne Ortland, who was the executive editor of Crossway Publishing. He's now a pastor. Uh, he's the son of Ray Ortland. You may be familiar with that name. And what Dwayne did was he took some time reading the scriptures and reading a particular British Puritan named Thomas Goodwin, who most of us haven't heard of, but Goodwin's teaching and reflection on the heart of Christ, not so much what Christ did, but where in scripture it makes a declaration about who he is in his innermost being. Uh, Goodwin preached sermons on that, Dwayne uh, compiled them and shortened them, and then using uh, his abilities as a writer, uh, presented them to us. So that uh, is in that book. It's in the back, and uh, we sell that uh, not to make money but to equip you, and I tr- trust it to you. Highly encourage it. The chapters are maybe four pages long. They're very short, but loaded. So this is our second message in a series of messages we've entitled The Heart of Christ, And we began the series by simply asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? What is most natural to him as he moves towards sinners and sufferers? What flows out of his heart most freely, most instinctively towards people like you and people like me? Who is he? Well, The scriptures we're going to look at this morning, Hebrews 4, and in just a moment, Matthew 23, pull back the curtain and give us another glimpse into the heart of Christ. This morning's message is entitled, The Heart of Christ, His Compassion. It probably should have been titled, The Heart of Christ, His Sympathy, but we'll we'll work with it. Let me pray, then I'll read Hebrews 4. Father, thank you for your word, our gracious God who draws near to us by your word and through your spirit. Lord, we pray now you would give us a glimpse of the heart of your son, our savior, whether we find ourselves 
in a valley of difficulty, darkness, and suffering. Or, Lord, we are confronted afresh with a besetting temptation or even sin. Lord, reveal your heart to each of us in that particular place where we need it most. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. Jesus is a remarkable Savior as we celebrate him each and every Sunday we gather and each week that we have been in existence, just as churches who stand on the scriptures and keep Christ and the message of his grace, the gospel, the main thing have done for centuries. This passage highlights, though, not only a remarkable Savior, but an unusual quality about him. In a most unusual quality, he sympathizes with you in your weakness. He sympathizes with you in your weakness, and he sympathizes with me as well. So in light of that most unusual of qualities, in this most remarkable of saviors, I have three takeaways this morning, if you will. I'm going to give them all to you up front, and then we'll work through each one, hopefully, clearly, and succinctly. But before I do, I want to set this passage up with a quote from the Puritan pastor I mentioned, Thomas Goodwin, which Dwayne Ortland quotes in his book. And it draws our attention to the fact that what the writer of Hebrews is describing may not be what you and I at first blush concluded it to be. It's not exclusively a theological statement, a truth about God, although it is true, theologically so. It is, again, another glimpse into the heart of Christ. For those he came to save. This is what Godwin wrote when he explained this text to his church in the 1600s there in Great Britain. It's quote number one, Kelsey. I have chosen this text as that which above any other speaks Christ's heart most. And sets out the frame and workings of it towards sinners. And that's so sensibly that it does, as it were, look at his language, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast and let us feel how his heart 
speaks and his affections yearn toward us. Even now, as he is in glory, the very scope of these words being manifestly to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from the consideration of Christ's heart toward them now in heaven. Imagine a passage of scripture, perhaps familiar to some of you, maybe new to others of you, but that through the work of the Spirit could, as it were, take our hands, our spiritual hands, and place them so close to God that you could hear his heart beating for you. What would it be like to have a friend take your hands or mine and place them on the chest of the risen Lord so that like a stethoscope, you could hear the vigorous strength of Christ's heart beating for you physically this morning and feel the vigorous strength of his affections, love, and longings for you today. Godwin is saying, based on Hebrews 4.15, we don't have to wonder anymore. Jesus is that friend. He sympathizes with his son our weakness. And he moves towards us, both sinners and sufferers alike, that we would hear his heart. Here's my first point this morning as we consider this passage. His sympathy is most tender towards us when we feel the weakest. His sympathy is most tender towards us when we feel the weakest. This sermon, if you will, called the book of Hebrews, has been preaching the gospel for four chapters to its original recipients, and it's been using roles and categories that would have been familiar to the original audience, most likely a Jewish audience, not exclusively. And he is going to give particular attention to this role, this remarkable role in the Old Testament, the priesthood, and in particular, the great high priest. Now, the modern ears we either immediately capitulate to another religious tradition or it's so archaic that we have no idea what he's talking about. That's okay. Because the issue primarily is not his priesthood, although that's important. The issue is the unusual quality that characterizes this most remarkable role. And that's why I think you've missed it. And that's why I think I missed it too. Because we're all focused on the one thing, which is important, and we don't hear the heartbeat that is pounding from these words. The broader context of Hebrews 4 is worth keeping before us. The fuller passage where we just step back goes like this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And then 
this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Verse 14 and verse 16 contain an exhortation. Let us hold fast to our confession. So our doctrine, what we believe about Jesus the Christ, is crucial, isn't it? He is the Son of God, fully man, the eternal Son who now has human DNA stamped into his being, mystery as that may be. And confidence in our communion with God. The second exhortation, verse 16, because of what the gospel has declared and we have put our trust in and believe Jesus, the eternal son of God, fully God and fully man, willingly died on the cross at Calvary in your place and mine, our substitute, our savior, taking upon himself not only the sin we have committed, it's shame, the guilt before God, but the, the verdict of condemnation and the judgment God has decreed for sinful rebellion towards his gracious and just rule, judgment, his wrath, hell. In order that all who put their trust in the Lord, all who repent, meaning they turn to Christ from their sin and place their hope, their faith, their their allegiance in him as our savior and the king. We can experience restored communion with God, forgiveness of our all of our sins, joy in the knowledge of knowing he is now our father and his indwelling spirit to remind us he is near. That's the context that anchors verse 15. But the burden of verse 15 is his heart. Jesus Christ's heart in verse 15 declares his, and this is Goodwin's language, his solidarity with his people. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, when you're going through a, a, a season of difficulty and you feel weak due to grief and sorrow, due to unexpected or chronic pain due to health, due to a sudden change of circumstances that interrupts or maybe disrupts your plans for the future and hopes for tomorrow, when you feel weak or when you're weak spiritually because you've been tempted by a besetting sin or you're sinning high-handedly, you doing what you know is wrong and you're experiencing that that sense of loss of communion with God. All our natural inclinations, yours and mine, tells us that Jesus is with us and on our side, present and helping when life is going well, when the boss likes us, when the kids obey, when the meatloaf turns out perfectly that you've worked so hard on, or whatever other 
hosts of expressions of God's common grace. We look to good gifts. But when things begin to go awry, when we don't have things together, (laughs) as I often don't, when we don't do the things we're supposed to do or the things we're supposed to do, we're not very good at it if we look in the mirror long enough to consider what is expected of us. What does this text say? This text says that Jesus sympathizes with us. The word for sympathy here, it's a, it's a compound word, I'm told, which has at its beginning a prefix with, like our, co, our English prefix co, joined with the verb to suffer. So take that all together. And Jesus not only is with us in our weakness, this verse teaches us that his heart is so drawn to us in that moment that he personally and painfully is experiencing what we're going through. See, we affirm that he has perfect knowledge of us down to our DNA. But I'm not as full-throated in saying, and he feels and experiences what we're going through with us equally, knowledgeably. He understands me and he gets you too. Because he has experienced in his humanity, as Roxanne exhorted us, all manner of trial and temptation, hostility and difficulty. And so his heart, Goodwin writes, is feelingly drawn into our distress. His human nature engages our troubles comprehensively. His love, he writes, cannot be held back when he sees his people in difficulty. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he experiences the suffering as if it is his own. Not that his invincible dignity and divinity is threatened, but in the mystery of his presence, his heart is affected. This is not the detached king doling out sympathy from a distance. Jesus feels your weakness. He feels mine too. And he sympathizes with us. To illustrate this, there's a passage in scripture that says one of the most shocking things about Christ, maybe in all of the New Testament, And it's found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. But before I go there, I want to set it up with an illustration, and then we'll look at the Scripture. But see if it doesn't, for you as it does for me, begin to change, if not flip, your understanding of God's heart for us when we are weak and when we are hard-hearted too. I believe the Puritans spoke of this as the primal note. It's only Puritans can to use language that we don't use anymore. The primal note. And it was picked up at a Puritan preaching conference down at Beeson a few years ago that was celebrating the works of Goodwin, 
Sibs. And it goes like this. It's late at night, and a young mother hears her young infant crying inconsolably. She can't sleep because the infant can't sleep. And so unlike dad, this is very self-reflecting, I sleep through everything. Linda said I slept through the fire alarm the other day. The young mother gets up. She's tired. She needs her sleep maybe more so than I do. It's one in the morning. And yet, little William is wailing loudly. Sorry, William. All the kids cried. She gets up. She picks up the child. And what does she do? After checking for poo-poo and seeing if there's any other reasons why, little Junior, she brings the child close to her heart. So that the child can hear the heartbeat of the mother beating. Just like when the child was in the womb. That secure, warm, dark space where existence was primarily defined by three meals a day, warmth, and a beating heart. The mother's. Scripture says of Christ, when you and I are weak, either due to, yes, a pattern of repeated sin. Or you and I are weak because of fighting for holiness in those temptations. Or you and I are weak because we're in the middle of a pandemic and the whole world sometimes feels like it's out of our control. Wherever you fit into that picture, this verse says, Jesus brings you close enough to his heart so that you can hear him beating. Whether you know that or not, whether you experience that or not, the point is that Jesus makes the first move. He moves towards you. He hears you crying. So when David in Psalm 6 says, Lord, you have heard my tears. You have heard my weeping. You have heard me as I have prayed about those who approach me. He has heard them because his presence is right there. He's moving close to his king to draw him into his heart. Matthew 23, verse 27. It's quite a claim. Does scripture declare that? Let me just read the con- read the verses, Matthew 23, and this is our closing. Closing point, Kelsey. We all long to hear the Savior's heartbeat of love, and his grace is most tender towards us for the hardest parts of our heart. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this, familiar verses, I'm sure, for many. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, 
and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His grace in this passage is most tender towards the hardest of hearts. The scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders who have systematically sought to kill the message of the gospel since his earthly ministry began and is about to kill the gospel himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he commits himself to ride into Jerusalem. It's a hard passage. There are more exclamation points here and woes and denunciations there than we have time to go over. But there is Jesus in the midst of this hostility longing for these ones. He says in language that appears so out of context for what's occurring, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Bible scholars have told me, and so I defer to them, that this may be the only part of the New Testament where feminine language is used to describe the heart of Christ the Savior. The only place in the New Testament where the heart of Christ is likened to a mother caring for young children. Do you see that? How a hen would gather her chicks under her wings to protect them to against the... the, the evil of a predator, and to assure them you're safe. But in this passage, Jesus is saying that about a group of people that hate him, that are committed to killing him, that have resolved in their hearts not only to reject him, but to do away with him. It brings into focus that not only is the heart of Christ most tender when we feel the weakest, his grace is most tender in those parts of your heart and mine that are hardest. It was a... Vacation, not unlike the ones you go on several years ago. And I was taking a long walk on the beach. There had been some dramatic changes in my life and in my ministry. And since I was a young pastor, it felt like even my livelihood was in jeopardy. Supports that had been in place for 20 years or longer were now leaving. And changes within even our ministry, no doubt due to my my errors and leadership failures, were being brought front and center to me. You ever go on one of those long walks where you just kind of lose yourself and whatever you're thinking about? 
And before you know it, I was at that part of the beach that I'm not supposed to be on, you know, the, the part closed by, like, the National Guard for, like, satellites or nuclear missiles or something. I mean, I didn't know. You know, I guess I should know when I climbed over the fence and saw the signs. You will be shot if you keep walking. But I kept walking. It's beautiful. Praying. And then I stopped. I just stopped talking. I had scriptures with me. I stopped reading the scriptures. I stopped praying. And I started crying. But they were tears of anger. They were tears of anger at God. I'm on a pastoral payroll. We're not allowed to get angry with God. That comes up in your annual review. Forget about raises. How about just job security? You're angry with God. Oh, thanks for serving us. We'll, we'll see you later. And I began to pour out my lament to the Lord. Statements like, I didn't sign up for this. Didn't you promise me this? And look at this. As if I had nothing to do with the mess. I'm, I'm sure if I was part of anything, it contributes to the mess. But not in that moment. You have been unfaithful to me. We sacrificed so much. And look where it's gotten me. The tears, the anger, the rage. To the point where it was all out. And then I realized I'm not alone. Yes, there were seagulls there yelling at me. Yes, I was probably being tracked by the, the Homeland Security National Guard. And, but there was one with me who was drawing near. Listen, some of you don't even have a category for this. In that hardest part of my heart where I knew I was out of bounds and sinning. His name is Jesus. And I remember those words. I have never left you. And I will never forsake you. And I wept bitterly. That's the heart of Christ for Bauer Evans. When he's weak and when he's sinning. That's the compassion of Christ bringing me close to his heart so I can hear even his heartbeat. Maybe not literally, but reassuring words, his presence, which comports with scripture to which I now found the ability to say, yes, Lord, forgive me for my rage. I repent. Thank you for hearing my heart. Thank you for drawing me close to you. Friends, when you became a Christian, he did something for you that you couldn't do for yourself through his grace and the message of the gospel. He brought you close to the heartbeat of God, Christ, and confronted with your wretched state apart from the righteousness of Christ, he declared, I love you. I forgive you. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
And now that we're on that journey, he comes to us in passages like this and reminds us and reminds you as we go into our week. He brings to us this word to tell us, I long to pull you up under my wings. But you are not longing or desiring or wanting it. Come to me. Sometimes we can argue with scriptures like this and say, that is not the God of the Bible. Like the man who argued with my pastor a long time ago when he preached on Galatians 2 or 3 or 4 and talked about calling God Abba, Father. And the man said to my pastor at that time, Dave, he said, I do not like when you talk about God that way. Even though it's in the Bible, it sounds irreverent to me. It sounds so personal to me. I like to keep God on the margins of my life. And Dave, who also was a student of the Puritans, said, Well, I love the way the Puritans talk about the Christian life. And they talk about these dark night of the souls where it feels like you can't see anything. It's just dark. And it's in that moment that you realize Jesus is not a safe, distant Savior. He's got you under his wings. He's got his arms of love enfolded around you. The Puritans used to call that believing views of the soul. Believing views of the soul, because in that moment, as you're being pulled closer to God, you realize it's his grace. It's his unmerited grace that draws not only near to us, but pulls us close to him. Unmerited means I don't deserve it and can't earn it. But if I'm in Christ, I've got it. And if you're not in Christ, it's free for the taking today. Put your hope in Jesus. And not in yourself anymore. Because these verses, if we let them, the generation in Matthew 23, 45 days later, heard Peter stand up and preach and tell this this Jesus whom you crucified is Lord and Savior. And 3,000 of them, the very ones who hated Christ and opposed him, experienced that gracious call and were born anew into the kingdom where Jesus is willing. Jesus is here. His arms are open for sinners and sufferers. There is everything we need in Jesus because in the heart of Christ, we find compassion and sympathy. Friends, as you look to the week ahead, what does listening for Christ's compassionate sympathy mean for you? In what areas of your life do you most long to hear the Savior's heartbeat of love? Perhaps you are grieving as the Johnsons are grieving, the passing of a family member. Perhaps you are Feeling the impact of COVID. And now that you can't do all these things for God in ministry, you're brought face to face with how little 
your personal relationship with him seems to be flourishing. Perhaps you're just like me. And there's so much noise and distractions that rather than listening to God, you're arguing with him in order to demand rest in all these other things instead of simply taking his yoke upon you and finding that rest. Lastly, by way of an implication and application question, the glorious news of this most remarkable Savior with this most unusual quality, he sympathizes with us in our weakness. Weakness sets us free to turn to him. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The band can return. That we may receive mercy and find grace in times of need in those areas of our life where we are weak and tempted. It's our weakness that helps us to turn to him, isn't it, for help. And the gospel is the game changer for those parts of our heart that are the hardest to his gospel of grace. So may this week, particularly for those of us who feel weak, whether it be through suffering or our battles with temptation and even sin, may this week be the week that Christ reveals afresh to you a most remarkable Savior with a most unusual quality. He sympathizes with you and your weakness. May this be the year where Crossway Church hears the primal note of Christ pulling us closer to him that we hear his heartbeat for us. Let's pray. Lord, we all long to hear that you love us. In times of uncertainty, tumult, and change, we are thankful for a sympathetic Savior that is drawn in his sympathy even closer to us than we may imagine or know. Lord, in in those moments this week where we feel the weakest, we pray, Lord, through scripture, song, the encouragement of another, through just your sovereign, imminent presence, we would hear the heartbeat of our King. And in those areas, Lord, where we know our heart has become hard, Oh, Lord, may we hear the tenderest heartbeat of your grace. For it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And it is your sympathy that gives us great hope. So, Spirit of God, take these words and lead us towards King Jesus. We pray this in his name. And everybody said, Amen. Let's stand.